morning to all of you. See you again this morning. Uh, just to clarify, Bobby and I did not coordinate. <laughs> so, because it just shows we've been spending too much time together, probably. So. All right. Well, this morning we're going to pick up uh, this topic that we started last week, uh, which is sort of a springboard off of uh, our study in John. We've been studying John 17. And we've been encountering... Uh, these truths related to Christ's death and what his death would accomplish throughout John and especially in John 17. And so I decided it would be helpful just to take a, a break and step back and consider uh, this doctrine of the atonement and just what Christ was accomplishing in this atonement um, from a theological perspective, packaging things together to make sure we don't miss some of the significant truths um, that Christ has been teaching us and that this doctrine teaches us. So I've entitled this lesson, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, a Theological Examination of the Extent and Efficacy of the Atonement. Last week I uh, introduced a couple of works here to you to recommend for reading. Uh, In My Place, Condemned He Stood by J.I. Packer and Mark Dever, helpful book just on the atonement in general uh, and on this doctrine of definite atonement. Um, then a more substantial work here from heaven he came and sought her very helpful uh, the one I wanted to introduce to you today is actually titled the same thing we're titling this lesson Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray has anyone in here read this book it is a fantastic book uh, it is a classic um, everybody should read Redemption Accomplished and Applied by, by John Murray uh, very very helpful very readable Um, And as we talk about just beholding the glory of Christ and thinking and meditating on the atonement, this is an excellent place to go. Um, Very, very precious uh, truths in it. Uh, So I will quote from him some some this morning. So the two basic questions we're seeking to answer in our little study here is what, number one, what did Christ's cross accomplish? What was the effect of... Of his cross. Did his cross actually make atonement and actually propitiate the wrath of God and accomplish redemption and secure the salvation of his people? Or did it only make atonement and redemption possible? So that's the question. What was the effect? My argument last week was that his death did something more then simply make atonement and redemption possible for every single person. His death accomplished redemption. It made a real atonement. It made real propitiation. It completely secured the eternal life for all of those he was intending to die for. And so that leads to the second question, number two, for whom did he intend to die for? John Murray asks it like this, on whose behalf did he propitiate the wrath of God? Whom did he reconcile to God in the body of his flesh through death? Whom did he redeem from the curse of the law, from the guilt and power of sin, from the enthralling power and bondage of Satan? Who did he do that for? My argument from last week was that he did it not for everybody, but for those the Father gave him to redeem. 
The aim of his redemption was particular. It aimed to accomplish something for a particular people. But if his cross really intended to accomplish redemption for every single person, then we must conclude one of two things. Either everyone in the world will be saved, which is universalism, which the scripture denies everywhere, or that Christ has ultimately failed in what he intended to accomplish. He intended to atone for the sin of every single person, but people are still being judged for their sin. So the main point we made last week was was this. Christ is a redeemer who really does redeem. Our definition is that the doctrine of definite atonement teaches that Christ died as a substitute atoning sacrifice for a specific group of people whereby he accomplished all that was necessary for the redemption of God's elect and through it guaranteed the salvation of each and every one of them. John Murray captures it when he writes, if we concentrate on the thought of redemption, we shall be able perhaps to sense more readily the impossibility of universalizing the atonement. What does redemption mean? It does not mean redeemability, that we are placed in a redeemable position. It means that Christ purchased and procured redemption. This is the triumphant note of the New Testament whenever it plays on the redemptive chord. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood. He obtained eternal redemption. He gave himself for us in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It is to beggar the concept of redemption as an effective securement of release by price and by power to construe it as anything less than of the effectual accomplishment which secures the salvation of those who are its objects. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem himself a people. And that is what we are arguing in this, in these lessons. So my aim last week was to demonstrate from scripture, primarily from the gospel of John, four main points. Number one, that Christ atoned for a specific group of people, satisfying God's wrath and removing God's judgment from them. That everyone for whom he did this will be saved. That faith is the essential means whereby the benefits of Christ's death are applied to the sinner. So we're not saying your faith is not important. It absolutely is important. You don't believe you do not have the benefits of Christ's death. But number four, that even that faith is the result of Christ's work. On your behalf. And I gave two reasons last week why I think that's correct. Um, The first was that it seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture. And we looked at the Gospel of John in particular, um, some, some key texts there. The Gospel of John tells us that Christ's death was directed at a specific group of people, his sheep, those the Father gave him. Not all belong to that people. 
All that do belong to this people, the Son ensures their eternal life. And he does that by laying down his life for them in, in death. And we looked at a number of texts in John which support each of those points. And then last week we looked at the second reason here. It's because the unity of the Trinity is at stake. The unity of the Trinity is at stake. If we posit that Christ intended to atone for the sin of every single person in the world, that was his intent, then we have disunity in the Trinity, for clearly the Father did not give every single person to the Son. He gave him a specific people before they exercised faith in the Son. And the Spirit does not go to grant faith and regeneration to every single person. Right? So we have conflict within the Trinity. If Christ is saying, I'm I'm going to atone for the sin of every person, but the Spirit is only giving life and applying that atonement to some. And the Father is only choosing some. And that is very significant if the Trinity is at odds with one another. Scripture teaches that the triune God is unified in all that he does. There's not a single work that one member does that all the other members are not also involved in and in complete agreement with. So we summed it up this way. The Father plans redemption, the Son accomplishes redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption. They are one. Well, I have one more reason that we didn't get to last week, why it is important to affirm this doctrine. And there's many more we could give, but these are three important ones. It is that Christ's atonement must be definite because the unity of his priesthood demands it. The unity of his priesthood demands it. So that Christ is a high priest is implied in John 17, and it is clearly affirmed in the book of Hebrews over and over again. So I'm not even going to argue that point. Um, Scripture clearly presents Christ as the final great high priest. So if that is the case, the next question is to ask, what is the office of the high priest? What are the tasks of the priest? For whom does the priest perform those tasks? For whom does the priest perform those those tasks? And these are obviously massive questions, and we we only have time for the briefest of, of surveys this is so important to hit this point because it keeps Christ's work and Christ's office in the context of a covenant. That is very important. It keeps it within the constructs of priesthood that we get throughout the Bible. And so that's it's very important not to pull it out of its biblical context. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 verse, verse 1 here. It says, for every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So we can answer a few questions about the role of a high priest from this passage. Number one is, who did the priest represent? It's clear from this text that he did not represent some foggy, blurry, non-defined people. He didn't represent every single person in the world. Who did he represent? He's chosen to act on behalf of men, on behalf of people, specifically the covenant people of God. 
the people within the, the covenant. That is for whom he, those for whom he performed his tasks. Second thing we can answer is, what are the tasks of the high priest? So at the heart of his office, his job was to represent the people before God to do what? According to Hebrews 5.1, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the answer, number one, his task is to make atonement for sin. Atonement was at the heart of what the priest did. They made atonement for the people they represented. So not only did they represent a particular people, but there's also no separation between the offering and the application of the atonement to those they represented. So they offered sacrifices and they applied those sacrifices of atonement for that people all the time. Now it's clear these sacrifices in the Old Testament are obviously not salvific, right? They don't grant and guarantee eternal life. Hebrews says they don't cleanse and purify the conscience, but they're still effective. They weren't intended to do those things. They were intended to allow a holy God to dwell among an unholy people. Hebrews 9.13 says that the blood of bulls and goats actually do something. What do they do? They sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now, Christ's blood is much greater. It cleanses our consciences. But everyone for whom the priest sacrificed, atoned for, they were atoned. It sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. It allowed them to be able to dwell and come close to a holy God. So that's the first thing that a priest did. They, they made atonement for for sin. And they applied that atonement to those they represented. But in addition to the offering of sacrifices for atonement, their role also included interceding for the worshipers. They not only made atonement, they made intercession for the same people that they made atonement for. They made atonement to guarantee their acceptance of the covenant people of God, and they interceded that all of the blessings of God's covenant would be for that same people. There's no separation between these two tasks. Offering and intercession are inseparable from one another. Look how these are taken up by the servant in Isaiah 53, the very last verse. I won't read it all, but look at the last line. It says, He bore the sin of many. He made atonement. He dealt with. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He's a great high priest. He does both of these tasks for the same group of people. The tasks cannot be separated. Now, having given those two answers, we're ready to apply it now to the work of Christ. Christ, as high priest, fulfills this office and these duties. And in John, we discover that both of these tasks are undertaken by, by Christ. He makes atonement and he intercedes. His work is unified. Those for whom he intercedes are also those he makes atonement for. And John 17, where we've been, makes it explicit that he's interceding for who? What does Jesus say? Chapter 17, verse 9. I am praying for them, those you gave me. I am not interceding and praying for the world. 
Christ prayed for and interceded for the same people he was going to die for. Robert Leatham puts it this way. He said, if we see the intercession as particular and the cross as universal, we are positing a disruption in the heart of Christ's high priestly work. They belong together. John Owen in his classic, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, writes this, to offer and to intercede, to sacrifice and to pray are both acts of the same sacerdotal or priestly office. And both are required in him who is a priest. So that if he omits either, either of these, he cannot be a faithful priest for them. If he doth not offer for them or not intercede for the success of his oblation, his sacrifice on their behalf, he is wanting in the discharge of his office by him undertaken. Both of these we find conjoined as before in Jesus Christ. So as a high priest, Christ's work is unified. It's effectual. He represents people as their high priest. He secures the redemption and makes certain the gifts of the new covenant through his atonement and through his intercession. Stephen Wellam writes this, As the great high priest, Christ's work is an effective work which provides and secures everything necessary for the salvation of those in the new covenant. His intent was not only to achieve the redemption of a particular people, but also to secure everything necessary to bring the same people to the end for which his death was designed, namely, the full forgiveness of sin and all the blessings of the new covenant, including the gift of the Spirit who effectively applies his work to those whom the Son represents. That's why John 17 is in the Bible. That's what Jesus is doing in John 17. He's securing your eternal redemption. Even of those who have not yet believed. Right? Is that what he says? Verse 20, verse 24. I ask not for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the point is that as a great high priest, Christ's work of atonement and prayer both secure the blessings of the new covenant for all those for whom he represents. And the only alternatives to this conclusion must be that his work as a priest was not unified. So there's this strange, he's making atonement for everybody, but he's only interceding for a specific group. Or it's not effectual or it's not specific. That's what all general atonement views must conclude. But such a conclusion goes against everything we know about priesthood in the Bible. Stephen Wellam again writes, Scripture knows nothing of a priestly work, which is not also a unified work of provision and intercession for a specific people. To view Christ as our greater priest entails that his work, especially under the new covenant, is an effective work which provides and secures everything necessary for the salvation of those in that covenant. So when we keep Christ's role as priest and his work in a covenantal context and in line with a biblical understanding of a priest's role, we must conclude that his work of atonement and his intercession are directed at the same group of people. And it successfully guarantees the benefits of the covenant. So those are three arguments why I think it is biblical and important to affirm this doctrine of of definite atonement. 
So before we move on, I want to take us back to that label that I began with last week, limited atonement, right? And I said that it's not a helpful label um, unless you're a universalist because everyone limits the atonement. But people limit the atonement in different ways. So now that we've looked at some, some biblical arguments which support the, the, the truth of what Christ's work accomplished and who he accomplished it for, we can now draw some lines around the different ways people seek to limit the atonement. I think this might be helpful for you. So who limits the atonement? Well, the way we have framed up the atonement indeed limits the atonement in some way, right? The way we have described so far. But it does not limit the atonement in another sense. That's the first option. It limits the atonement in terms of its extent. It was not intended to accomplish something for every single person. But it does not limit the atonement in terms of its power and its efficacy. The atonement is the unlimited power of God to make real atonement and to guarantee the redemption of God's people. It is unlimited in that sense. But the alternative position, the Arminian position, or any other general atonement views, likewise limit and do not limit the atonement in some sense. They do not limit the extent of the atonement and the aim of the atonement. It's intended to accomplish something for every single person. In that sense, it is limitless. But in order to avoid universalism, they must limit the atonement in terms of its power and its efficacy. You see? It does not and cannot guarantee the salvation and redemption and atonement of any person. Something else, namely a person's free response, must be added to it for it to become effectual. So the question is, who limits the atonement? The answer is everybody, but in different ways. And my contention is option two limits the atonement in a way much more severely than option one does. Listen to to Charles Spurgeon. Love this. It's a bit of an extended quote, but it's so good. Spurgeon says, We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They are obligated to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if. And then they follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You. You say that Christ did not die so infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say that we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he 
infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death are not only not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. John Murray, likewise, notes the consequences of limiting the atonement in this way. He says the doctrine of the atonement must be readily revised as atonement, if, as atonement, it applies to those who finally perish, as well as to those who are heirs of eternal life. In that event, we should have to dilute the grand categories in which, in terms of which the scripture defines the atonement and deprive them of their most precious import and glory. So who limits the atonement? Well, everybody does, unless you believe everyone will be, be saved. The question is, how do you do it? And what are the consequences if you do the, the latter? So we have a little bit of time left. And uh, I told you last week that I wanted to deal with some problem passages next. Some passages from Scripture which seem to be teaching the opposite. Sound like Christ actually did die for every single person. So what I want to do is... I also want to apply this doctrine, help you see why it is so important. It's not, it does not exist so we can have controversy. It is a precious truth, something we should glory in. And so I, want to, I want to weave these together. I want to take you to some of these problem passages and show you not only that they don't contradict definite atonement, but actually they support definite atonement. And then I want to use those same passages to show you how that has those passages are actually massive encouragements to you and are precious, precious truths. So the next question I want to ask is why is this doctrine important and how should it affect our, our lives? Why is this good news? Why does it matter that we affirm it? So I'm going to show you two this morning, and then next week I think I'll have two, two more. Number one, this doctrine exists for the glory of God in Christ and should produce profound and lasting worship of God in Christ. So go with me to John 17, if you will. Look at the verses we already have studied, verses 1 through 2. John 17, verses 1 to 2. And when we studied those, those verses, we noted that the heart of the gospel is God and not man. That is so key. The heart of the gospel is God and not man. What does Christ pray as he looks his hour into the, into the eyes? He says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. The ultimate purpose of the plan of redemption is the glory of God, not merely the redemption of man. You have to get that right. The fundamental reason we have a gospel and why any of us sinners have any hope at all is because of God's pursuit of his own glory. Or more specifically, from eternity past, the Father's pursuit of the glory of his Son who radiates and reflects the very glory of the Father. 
and the Son's pursuit from eternity past is the glory of the Father as he images and reflects back to the Father his very glory. And from that pursuit comes the gospel and good news for sinners. God's plan of redemption, verse 2. Jesus takes us back to eternity past, just as you gave him, presumably in eternity past, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all those whom you have given to him. And that culminated in the, in the cross. So that's why Christ prays what he does in verse 1. The cross has been anticipated from eternity, and the primary thing it would accomplish is the glory of the Father through the glory of the Son. That's the goal of the gospel. The glory of Christ in the cross resounding to the glory of the Father is the ultimate reason we have the gospel, and it's the ultimate aim of the gospel. But what does Christ's glory in the cross consist of? How is Christ glorified in the cross? How does that result in the Father's glory? Right? That's the question we need to ask. The answer is that the glory of Christ and the Father and the cross is rooted in what Christ accomplished in the cross. Christ glorified the Father, how? By accomplishing the Father's purposes. Namely, what? Verse 2, giving eternal life to all those the Father gave to him. So look at verse 4. How did Christ glorify the Father? I glorified you on earth through the cross having accomplished the work you gave me to do. What's that? Verse 2, giving eternal life to those you gave me. And how did the Father glorify the Son through the cross? Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It was by accepting his work, returning him to pre-incarnate glory as the triumphant Messiah who had accomplished all of the Father's work. So John Murray gets it right when he says this. When we examine the scripture, we find, this is so profound, that the glory of the cross of Christ is bound up with the effectiveness of its accomplishment. That is where the glory of Christ is seen. The glory of Christ is bound up with the effectiveness of the cross. The glory of Christ consists primarily of his total and complete accomplishment of the redemption and eternal salvation of those the Father gave to him. So look with me at Revelation chapter 5, if you would. The throne room, after Christ has ascended, he's done this, the cross, he goes back, and we get a peek into heaven. Wish we had time to read through verses 1 through 10. We don't, but John's weeping. No one has the authority to break the seals, open the scroll, enact God's plans of salvation and judgment and restoration of his kingdom. John weeps, but he is directed to the lion who has conquered, triumphed, triumphant Messiah. How did he do that? John looks and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain, slaughtered. That's how Christ triumphed, by being slaughtered as a lamb. And he takes the scroll, and they fall down, and the elders and angels fall down and worship him. And they sing a new song, verse 9. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation, language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Know what, what his blood accomplished? It ransomed people. It redeemed people. A specific people. He didn't do it for all the tribes. It says people from every tribe. He ransomed them for God as God's special people. And the result is the worship and praise of Christ alongside the Father. Verses 11 through, through 14. Look at verse 12. Myriads and myriads of angels bow down. They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Why? Because of what he accomplished, verse 9. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say to him who sits on the throne, the father and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And ever. The glory of Christ consists in his triumph as Messiah, as he perfectly accomplished the redemption of a people for God by his blood. His glory consists in his triumph through the cross. In other words, we belittle the glory of Christ and the glory of the cross when we dilute or diminish the efficacy of the cross. That's why this doctrine matters. When we say that Christ successfully redeemed only some of those he was intending to redeem, we skew and belittle his glory. The glory of Christ, the cross of Christ, is bound up with the effectiveness of what it accomplished. So what must our response be? How should we respond to this doctrine? It should be the same as what we saw in Revelation 5. Worship. Praise. God's aim is not only the display of his glory, but the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, he did it to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Christ's glory consists in his going to the point of the ignominious cross in obedience to the Father and through his suffering redeeming every one of those the Father gave him, atoning for their sins, securing their final redemption, and the only appropriate response is worship. Matthew Harmon writes, this doctrine simply affirms that the ultimate purpose of the atonement is God-centered rather than man-centered. The Son came down from heaven in order to glorify his Father by doing his will, which to save those the Father had given him. The only appropriate response on our part is worship. Well, I have one more. We have about four, four minutes here. Let me... Let me hammer through this because I have a couple of big points next week as well. Second point of application here. 
This doctrine exists for the assurance of God's people. This doctrine is meant for nothing other than your assurance. Go to Romans chapter 8, if you will. Romans chapter 8, verse verse 32. Romans 8, verse 32. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is one of those problem texts, right? It's right there, Michael. He gave him up for us all, right? Well, I hope to show you that it's not only clear that it refers to a definite people, but it is a a great encouragement, should be a great encouragement to you. Who are the us all? He gave them up for us all. What's made clear in the second half of the verse, is it not? They are those, the same group that he gives all things to. If he didn't withhold his son, but gave him up for us all, he most certainly will with him graciously give us all, give us all things. Same group. In other words, it's inconceivable to Paul that God should give up his son for people and yet not give them all things. Everything else they need to bring them all the way to complete and final salvation. It's inconceivable to Paul. John Murray again writes, Everyone on whose behalf the Father delivered up the Son becomes the beneficiary of all the other gifts of grace. To put it briefly, those contemplated in the sacrifice of Christ are also partakers of the other gifts of saving grace. And if that were not enough, take a step back and look at the larger context, verse 28 to 34. Who is the us of verse 32? We'll look back up at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, there are those for whom God has been for from eternity past, for knowing, predestining, calling, justifying. It's the same group for us. Drop your eye down to verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. There it is again, atonement and intercession going together. And the point is to say that we who have been foreknown by the Father from eternity and given to the Son will most certainly be made to persevere and brought to final salvation. No dropouts. None. Christ died for me. That is the confident hope of every single believer. And if that's your hope, you can be sure that God through Christ will give you everything else you need to bring you to final salvation. And so verse 35, who can separate us from the love of of God and Christ. In other words, the cross stands as the central pivot point in God's plan of redemption. It's in response to the Father's foreknowing and choosing. And the results of the cross is everything else you experience in the order of salvation. Regeneration, calling, justification, perseverance, glorification, all flow out of what Christ accomplished for you in the cross. J.I. Packer says this, and we'll close with this. 
We have not seen the full meaning of the cross till we have seen it as the center of the gospel. Flanked on the one hand by the total inability and unconditional election. And on the other by irresistible grace and final preservation. For the full meaning of the cross only appears when the atonement is defined in terms of these four truths. Everything we experience in the Christian life flows out of what Christ accomplished for you. And that comes from where? God's eternal love freely with which he chose you and the beloved. So the point of application is know and see the glory of Christ. Worship him. Praise him for this. And know the rock-solid assurance that means for you as a believer. The fact that you are trusting him, depending on him, hoping in him, is evidence he's died for you. Cling to him. Rest there. And be filled with assurance. That is what this doctrine is meant to produce. So next week, we're going to conclude by two more points of application. Number one is how this doctrine helps you to know the love with which you've been loved. Massive. And number two, I want to talk about how we should preach the gospel. If this is true, how do I share the gospel? What do I say? And we'll wrestle through some of those those questions. All right, we are we're out of time, and uh, thank you for your attention. Meditate on these truths this week, um, and uh, they're precious. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your amazing love. We deserve nothing. Thank you that Christ not only made redemption possible, but secured it. He's done everything before we even cared. First John says he loved us first while we hated God. He propitiated the wrath of God for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cause us, Lord, to know his glory, and to rest in his grace. Ask that you would bless us, Lord, and cause us to grow as men and women strong in the faith for the glory of Christ and your purposes in the world. We love you. Ask that you would apply this text now, these words to our hearts, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.